Section 6 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Eminent Painters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Eminent Painters by Albert Hubbard. Rubens, Part 2. When Peter Paul Rubens, age 23, arrived at Venice, the Duke of Mantua and his train were there. Rubens presented his credentials to Chiappo, and the Minister of State read them, looked upon the handsome person of the young man, proved for himself he had decided talent as a painter, put him through a civil service examination, and took him into favor. Such a young man as this, so bright, so courtly, so talented, must be secured. He would give the entire court a new thrill. Tomorrow, said the Minister of State, tomorrow you shall be received by the Duke of Mantua and his court. The Ducal Party remained at Venice for several weeks, and when it returned to Mantua, Rubens went along quite as a matter of course. From letters that he wrote to his brother Philip, as well as from many other sources, we know that the art collection belonging to the Duke of Mantua was very rich. It included works by the Bellinis, Correggio, Leonardo da Vinci, Andrea del Sorto, Tintoretto, Titian, Pauli, Veronese, and various others whose names have faded away like their colors. Rubens has long been accustomed to the ways of polite society. The magnificence of his manner and the fine egotism he showed in his work captivated the court. The Duke was proud of his ward and paraded him before his artistic friends as the coming man, incidentally explaining that it was the Duke of Mantua who had made him and not he himself. It was then the custom of those who owned masterpieces to have copies made and present them to various other lovers of the beautiful. If an honored guest was looking through your gallery and expressed great pleasure in a certain canvas, the correct thing was to say, I'll have my best painter make a copy of it and send it to you. And a memorandum was made on an ivory tablet. This gracious custom seems to have come down from the time when the owners of precious books constantly employed scribes and expert illuminators in making copies for distribution. The work done in the scriptoriums of the monasteries, we know, was sent away as presents or in exchange for other volumes. Reuben set diligently to work copying in the galleries of Mantua. And whether the Duke was happier because he had discovered Rubens than Rubens was because he had found the Duke, we do not know. Anyway, all that the young painter had hoped and prayed for had been sent him. Here was work from the very hands of the masters he had long worshipped from afar. His ambition was high, and his strong animal spirits and tireless energy were a surprise to the easy-going Italians. The galleries were his without let or hindrance, save that he allowed the ladies of the court to come every afternoon and watch him work. This probably did not disturb him, but we find the experienced Duke giving the young Fleming some good advice thus, 
You must admire all these ladies in equal portion. Should you show favoritism for one, the rest will turn upon you, and to marry any one of them would be fatal to your art. Rubens wrote the advice home to his mother, and the good mother viceded it and sent it back. After six months of diligent work at Mantua, we find Rubens starting for Rome with letters from the Duke to Cardinal Montalto, highly recommending him to the good graces of the Cardinal, and requesting that you will be graciously so good as to allow our Fleming to execute and make copies for us of such paintings as he may deem worthy. Cardinal Montalto was a nephew of Pope Sixtus and the strongest man, saved the Pope in Rome. He had immense wealth, great learning, and rare good sense in matters of art. He was a close friend of the Duke of Mantua, and to come into personal relations with such a man was a piece of rare good fortune for any man. The art world of Rome now belonged to Rubens. All doors opened at his touch. Our Fleming knew the value of his privileges. If I do not succeed, he writes to his mother, it will be because I have not improved my opportunities. The word fail was not in his lexicon. His industry never relaxed. In Walpole's Anecdotes of Painting, an account is given of a sketchbook compiled by Rubens at this time. The original was in the possession of Maurice Johnson of Spalding, England, in 1845, at which time it was exhibited in London and attracted much attention. I've seen a copy of the book with its hundred or more sketches of the very figures that we now see and admire in the Uffizi and Pitti galleries and in the Vatican. Eight generations of men have come and gone since Rubens sketched from the old masters, but there today stand the chiseled shapes which were then centuries old, and there today are the Titians and the Raffaellos, just as the exuberant Fleming saw them. Surely this must show us how short are the days of man. Open then the door, you know how little while we have to stay. The two figures that seem to impress Rubens most, as shown in the sketchbook, are the Farnese, Hercules, and Michelangelo's David. He shows the foot of the Hercules and the hand of the David, and gives front back and side views with comments and criticisms. Then, after a few pages have been covered by other matter, he goes back again to the Hercules. The subject fascinates him. When we view the crucifixion in the cathedral at Antwerp, we conclude that he admired the Hercules not wisely, but too well. For the muscles stand out on all the figures, even of the Savior, in pure Farnese style. Two years after that picture was painted, he did his masterpiece, The Descent from the Cross, and we behold with relief the change that had come over the spirit of his dreams. Mere pride in performing a difficult feat had given place to a higher motive. There is no reason to suppose that the apostles had trained to perform the twelve labors of Hercules, or that the two Marys were Amazons, but the burly Roman forms went back to Flanders, and for many years state citizens were slipped into classic attitudes to do duty as disciples, elders, angels, 
all with swelling biceps, knotted muscles, and necks like the Emperor of Vespasian. The Mantuan envoy at Rome had private orders from Chiapo to see that the Fleming was well treated. The envoy was further requested to report to the secretary how the painter spent his time, and also how he was regarded by Cardinal Montalto. Thus we see the wily secretary set one servant watching another, and kept in close touch with all. The reports, however, all confirmed the secretary in his belief that the Fleming was a genius, and moreover, worthy of all the encouragement that was bestowed upon him. The secretary sent funds from time to time to the painter, with gentle hints that he should pay due attention to his behavior, and also to his raiment, for the apparel of doth proclaim the man. The Duke of Mantua seems to have regarded Rubens as his own private property, and Rubens had too much sense to do anything by word or deed that might displease his patron. When he had gotten all that Italy could give, or more properly, all he could absorb, his intent was to follow his heart and go straight back to Flanders. Three years had passed since Rubin had arrived in Venice, years of profit to both spirit and purse. He had painted pictures that placed him in the rank of acknowledged artists, and the Duke of Mantua had dropped all patronizing airs. With the ducal party, Rubens had visited Verona, Florence, Pisa, and Padua. His fame was more than local. The painter hinted to Chiepo that he would like to return to Antwerp, but the secretary objected. He had important work for him. Rubens was from Flanders, and Flanders was a Spanish possession. Then the Fleming knew the daughter of the King of Spain. No man was so well fitted to go on a delicate diplomatic mission to Spain as the Flemish painter. You are my heart's jewel, said the Duke of Mantua to the Prime Minister when the minister suggested it. The Duke wished private information as to certain things Spanish and was also preparing the way to ask for sundry favors. The court at Madrid was artistic in instinct. So was the Mantuan court. To recognize the aesthetic side of your friend's nature, when your friend is secretly not quite sure, but that he is more worldly than spiritual, is a stroke of diplomacy. Spain was not really artistic, but there were stirrings being felt, and Velázquez and Murillo were soon to appear. The Duke of Mantua wished to present the King of Spain with certain pictures. His mind was filled with a lively sense of anticipation of future favors to be received, which feeling, we are told, is gratitude. The entire ceremony must be carried out appropriately. The poetic unity is being fully preserved. Therefore, a skillful painter must be sent with the pictures in order to see that they were safely transported properly unpacked, and rightly hung. Instructions were given to Peter Paul Rubens, the artistic ambassador at great length, as to how he should proceed. He was to make himself agreeable to the king, and to one greater than the king, the man behind the throne, the Duke of Lerma, and to several fair ladies as well. The pictures were copies of the master's, Titians, Raffaellos, Tintorettos, 
and Leonardo's. They were copied with great fidelity, even to the signature and private marks of the original artist. In fact, so well was the work done that if the recipient inclined to accept them as originals, his mind must not be disabused. Further, the envoy was not supposed to know whether they were originals or not, even though he had painted them. And if worse came to worst, he must say, well, surely they are just as good as the originals, if not better. Presents were taken for a dozen or more persons. Those who were not so very artistic were to have gifts of guns, swords, and precious stones. The ambassador was to travel in a new carriage, drawn by six horses and followed by wagons carrying the art treasures. All this sold as to make the right impression and prove to Madrid that Mantua was both rich and generous. And as a cap chief to it all, the painter must choose an opportune moment and present his beautiful carriage and horses to the king, for the belief was rife that the king of Spain was really more horsey than artistic. The pictures were selected with great care, and the finest horses to be found were secured, regardless of cost. Several weeks were consumed in preparation, and at last the cavalcade started away, with Rubens in the carriage and eleven velvet suits in his chest, as he himself has told us. It was a long, hard journey to Madrid. There were encounters with rapacious landlords and hairbreadth's escapes in the eminent deadly custom house. But in a month, the chromatic diplomat arrived and entered Madrid at the head of his company, wearing one of the velvet suits and riding a milk-white charger. Rubens followed orders and wrote Signor Chiepi at great length, giving a minute account of every incident and detail of the journey and of his reception at Madrid. While at the court, he kept a daily record of happenings, which was also forwarded to the secretary. These many letters have recently been given to the public. They are in Italian, with a sprinkling here and there of good, honest Dutch. All is most sincere, grave, and explicit. Rubens deserved great credit for all these letters, but surely they were written with sweat and lamp smoke. The work of the toiler is over all, but we must remember that at that time. He had been studying Italian only about a year. The literary style of Rubens was Johnsonese all his life, and he made his meaning plain only by repetitions and many rhetorical flounderings. Like the average 16-year-old boy who sits himself down and takes his pen in hand, all his sprightliness of imagination vanished at sight of an ink bottle. With a brush, his feeling were fluid, and in a company, grace dwelt upon his lips. But when asked to write it out, he gripped the pen as though it were a crowbar instead of a crow's quill. But Chiepo reserved his reports, and we know the embassy was a success, a great success. The debonair Fleming surprised the king by saying, Your Majesty, it is like this, and then with a few bold strokes drew a picture. He modestly explained that he was not much of a painter, merely used a brush for his own amusement, and then made a portrait for the Minister of State that exaggerated all of that man's good points and ignored all his failings. There was a cast in the minister's eye, 
but Rubens waved it. The minister was delighted, and so was the king. He then made a portrait of the king that was as flattering as portraits should be that are painted for monarchs. Among his other accomplishments, the Fleming was a skillful horseman. He rode with such grace and dash that the king took him on his drives. Rubens riding by the side of the carriage, gaily conversing as they rode. And so, with the aid of his many talents, he won the confidence of the king and court and was initiated into the inner life of Spanish royalty in a way that Alberto, the Mantuan resident, never had been. The king liked Rubens, and so did the man behind the throne. Mortals do not merely like each other because they like each other. Such a bond is tenuous as a spider's thread. I love you because you love the things that I love. One woman won my heart by her subtle appreciation of the dipsy chanty. Men meet on a horse basis, a book basis, a religious basis, or some other mutual leaning. Sometimes we find them uniting on a mutual dislike for something. For instance, I have a friend to whom I am bound by the tie of oneness because we dislike olives and have a mutual indifference to the pretended claims of the unpronounceable Pole who wrote, Quo Vadis. The discovery was accidentally made in a hotel dining room. We clasped hands across the board, and since then have been as brothers. The more points at which you touch humanity, the more friends you have, the greater your influence. Rubens was an artist, a horseman, a musician, a politician, and a gourmet. When conceptions in the kitchen were vague, he would send for the cook and explain to him how to do it. He possessed a most discriminating palate and a fine appreciation of things drinkable. These accomplishments secured him a well-defined case of gout while yet a young man. He taught the Spanish court how to smoke, having himself been initiated by an Englishman who was a companion of Sir Walter Raleigh and showed them how to roll a cigarette while engaged in ardent conversation. And the Spaniards have not yet lost the art. For once in Cadiz, I saw a horse running away, and the driver rolled and lighted a cigarette before trying to stop the mad flight of the frantic brute. In the Royal Gallery at Madrid are several large paintings by Rubens that were doubtless done at this time. They are religious subjects, but worked in after the manner of a true diplomat, of various portraits of brave men and handsome women, to pose a worthy senator as St. Paul, and a dashing lady of the court as the Holy Virgin, was most gratifying to the phrenological development of approbativeness of the said senator and lady. Then, as the painter had pictured one, he must do as much for others, so there could be no accusation of favoritism. Thus the months passed rapidly. The Duke of Lerma writes to Chiepo, We desire your gracious permission to keep the Fleming another month, as very special portraits are required from his brush. The extra month extended itself to three, and when at last Reuben started back for Mantua, it was after a full year's absence. The embassy was a most complete success. The diplomat well masked his true errand with the artist's garb. And who of all men 
was ever so well fitted by nature to play the part as Rubens. Yet he came near overdoing the part at least once. It was in this wise. He really was not sure that the honors paid him were on account of his being a painter or a courtier, but like comedians who think their forte is tragedy, so the part of courtier was more pleasing to Rubens than that of painter, because it was more difficult. He painted with such ease that he set small store on the talent. It was only a makeshift for advancement. Don John, Duke of Braganza, afterward King of Portugal, was a lover of art and desired to make the acquaintance of the painter. So he wrote to Rubens at Madrid, inviting him to Via Vitiosa, his place of residence. Rubens knew how the Duke of Mantua did these things. He decided to follow suit. With a numerous train, made up from the fringe of the Madrid court, with hired horsemen going before, and many servants behind, the retinue started away, coming within five miles of the Via of Don John. Word was sent that Rubens and his retinue awaited his embassy. Now Don John was a sure enough duke and could muster quite a retinue of his own on occasion, yet he had small taste for tinsel parades. Men who have a real good bank balance do not have to wear fashionable clothes. Don John was a plain, blunt man who liked books and pictures. He wanted to see the painter, not a courtier. And when he heard of the style in which the artist was coming, he just put a boy on a donkey and sent word out that he was not at home. And further, to show the proud painter his place, he sent along a small purse of silver to pay the artist for the trouble to which he had been. The rebuke was so delicate that it was altogether lost on Rubens. He was simply enraged. In all, Rubens spent eight years in the service of the Duke of Mantua. He had visited the chief cities of Italy and was familiar with all the art of the golden ages that had gone before. When he left Italy, he had to take advantage of the fact that the Duke was in France. For every time before, when he had suggested going, he was questioned thus, Why, have you not all you wish? What more could be done for you? Name your desire, and you shall have it. But Rubens wanted home. Antwerp, his mother, brother's sister, the broad river Scheldt, and the good old Flemish tongue. Soon after arriving in Antwerp, he was named as court painter by Albert and Isabella. Thus he was the successor of his old master, Van Veen. He was now aged 32, in possession of an income from the state and a fame and name to be envied. He was rich in money, jewels and art treasures brought from Italy, for he had the thrifty instincts of a true Dutchman. And it was a gala day for all Antwerp, when the bells rang and the great organ in the cathedral played the wedding march when Peter Paul Rubens and Isabella Brandt were married on the 13th of October, 1609. Never was there a happier mating. That fine picture of Munich of Rubens and his wife tells of the sweet comradeship that was to be theirs for many years. He opened a school and pupils flocked to him from all Europe. Commissions for work came, and orders were all to pieces from various churches. 
an order was issued by the Archduke that he should not leave Holland, and a copy of the order was sent to the Duke of Mantua to shut off his importunities. Among the pupils of Rubens, we find the name of Jordiens, whom he had first known in Italy, de Crayer, Anthony Van Dyke, Franz Schneider, and many others who achieved distinction. Rubens was a positive leader. So animated was his manner that his ambition was infectious. All his young men painted just as he did. His will was theirs. From now on, out of the thousands of pictures signed P.P. Rubens, we cannot pick out a single picture and say, Rubens did this. He drew outlines and added the finishing touches and surely would not have signed a canvas of which he did not approve. In his great studio at Antwerp, at various times, fully a hundred men worked to produce the pictures we call Rubens. Those glowing canvases in the Rubens Gallery of the Louvre, showing the history and apotheosis of Marie de Medici, were painted at Antwerp. The joyous, exuberant touch of Rubens is over all, even though the work was done by prentice hands. Peaceful lives make dull biographies, and in prosperity is small romance. We may search long before finding a life so full to overflowing of material good things as that of Rubens. All he touched turned to gold. From the time he returned to Antwerp in 1608 to his death in 1640, his life journey was one grand triumphal march. His many diplomatic missions were simply repetitions of his first Spanish embassy, with the Don John incident left out. But Don John seems to have been the only man who was not at home to the gracious Rubens. Mr. Ruskins had said, Rubens was a great painter, but he lacked that last undefinable something which makes heart speak to heart. You admire, but you never adore. No real sorrow ever entered his life. Perhaps we get a valuable clue in that last line. Great art is born of feeling, and the heart of Robins was never touched by tragedy, nor the rocky fastnesses of his tears broken in upon by grief. In many ways, his was the spirit of a child. He had troubles, but not sufficient to prevent refreshing sleep and when he awoke in the morning, the trials of yesterday were gone. Even when the helpful, faithful, and loving Isabella Brandt was taken away from him by death, there soon came other joys to take the place of those that were lost. We have full fifty pictures of his second wife. She looks down at us, smiling, buxom, content, from every gallery wall in Europe. Rubens was fifty-three, and she was sixteen when they married. And were it not for a twinge of gout now and then, he would have been as young as she. When Rubens went to England on an artistic commission, we see that he captured Charles I just as he captured the court of Spain. He painted five portraits of the king that we can trace. The mild-mannered Charles was greatly pleased with the fine portrait of himself, bestriding the prancing cream-colored charger. Several notable artists, Sir Joshua Reynolds among them, have complimented the picture by taking the horse, background and pose, and placing another man in the saddle, 
or more properly, taking off the head of Charles I and putting on the head of any bold patron who would furnish the price. And looking through the galleries of Europe, keep your eye out for equestrian portraits, and you will be surprised to see on your tab, when you have made the rounds, how many painters have borrowed that long-maned yellow horse that still rears in the National Gallery in London, smelling the battle afar off as Charles himself preferred to smell it. Rubens had a good time in England, although his patience was severely tried by being kept at painting for months, awaiting an opportune time to give King Charles some good advice on matters political. English ways were very different from those of the continent, but Rubens soon spoke the language with fluency, even if not with precision. Rubens spoke seven languages, and to speak seven languages is to speak no one well. On this point we have a little comment from high authority. Said Charles I, writing to Buckingham, the Fleming painter prides himself on being able to pass for an Englishman, but his English is so larded with French, Dutch, and Italian that we think he must have been employed on the Tower of Babel. While painting the ceiling of the banqueting hall at Whitehall, where a Dutchman was later to be crowned King of England. He discussed politics with the Duke of Buckingham and the King from the scaffold. Some years after, we find Buckingham visiting Rubens at his home in Antwerp, dickering for his fine collection of curios and paintings. The Duke afterwards bought the collection and paid Rubens 10,000 pounds in gold for it. Everyone complimented Rubens on his shrewdness in getting so much money for the wares, and Rubens gave a banquet to his friends in token of the great sale to the Britisher. It was a lot of money, to be sure, but the Englishman realized the worth of the collection better than did Rubens. We have a catalog of the collection. It includes 19 Titians, 13 Paul Veronese's, 17 Tintoretto's, three Leonardo's, three Raphael's, and thirteen pictures by Rubens himself. A single one of the Titians, if sold at auction today, would bring more than the Duke paid for the entire collection. James McNeil Whistler has said, There may be a doubt about Rubens having been a great artist, but he surely was an industrious person. There is barely enough truth in Mr. Whistler's remark, taken with its dash of wit to save it. But Philip Gilbert Hamerton's sober estimate is of more value. The influence of Rubens for good cannot be overestimated. He gave inspiration to all he met, and his example of industry, vivid imagination, good cheer and good taste have had an incalculable influence on art. We have more canvases from his hand than from the hand of any other master. And these pictures are a quarry to which every artist of today, consciously or unconsciously, is indebted. End of section 6